Quick disclaimer, there's the mention of suicide, sexual assault, and some adult themes this week. Please check out the post on mythpodcast.com for more information. This week on Myths and Legends, we have a few stories from Greek mythology, where we'll see competitive weaving, the storage of all the evils in the world in ancient Tupperware, and get helpful interior decorating tips on how to arrange the heads of your enemies. The creature this time is a sinister, zombie-like goat who will hunt you to the ends of the earth. As long as you don't walk up a slight incline, it doesn't do hills. This is Myths and Legends, episode 165, A Tangled Web. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins, and others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today, we're back in Greek mythology with a group of standalone stories. Don't worry about where it fits in with our current narrative, it's outside of all that. We'll jump into the kingdom of Lydia in modern-day Turkey and tell the rare ancient world story of a self-made woman. Known throughout the cities of Lydia, there was a woman. She wasn't known for her place of birth or bloodline, but her skill. She had been born to a humble mother who died in labor and a father who died when she was barely into her teen years. The older women of her village were kind. They taught her skills that they had learned, the ones that it would take to be an attractive prospect for marriage, though it was kind of a tragic joke. With no family, no dowry, and existing on the kindness of her community, the woman, named Arachne, would never marry. She would be lucky to make it into adulthood. But the woman was a survivor. She zeroed in on one particular skill, weaving. She took what she learned and drilled relentlessly. In months, she mastered what she knew. And in less than a year, she had outgrown the skill of not only her village, but the surrounding ones as well. And she continued. And as her skill grew, so did her renown. First merchants, then nobles, then royalty heard of her. She had commissions coming in from all around the known world. Against all odds, the orphan girl was not just surviving, but thriving. She lived in a modest home, and whatever she didn't need, she gave away. She sat with her door open most days, letting the sun find its way into her workshop, and the warm breezes go through. It was on one such day that the woman heard the sharp thud of a cane into her studio. She looked back, and a hunched, wizened woman was studying her work, squinting with her mouth agape. Arachne smiled. She moved to the side to let the old woman see. Arachne didn't know this one. And she knew everyone. So either this was some random traveler, or this was a fan. The old ladies were the best. They knew weaving, and Arachne loved to talk shop, learning something new from every one of them. This one, though, didn't say anything initially. She looked at Arachne's work, and then took a seat in front of a spare loom. Arachne smirked and turned. All right. The old woman didn't pay her any mind. Instead, working out the wool in the strands between her crooked fingers. Excuse me, Arachne ventured. The old woman wet her lips with her tongue. Contend with me, she croaked. I will not disagree at all if I am beaten. 
The old woman continued. She said Arachne was good. She must have been taught by Athena herself. Well, at the very least, she owed Athena, the patron of weaving, thanks and worship. Arachne pursed her lips and snatched the thread from the old woman's hand. The gods, she laughed. Where was Athena when her mother died? Where was she when Arachne's father died? What Arachne hadn't learned from the people in the village kind enough to teach her, she taught herself. All this, she built herself. She had already given Athena the thanks Athena was due. The woman sat there, staring. Which was nothing. Athena deserved no thanks. Arachne barked, explaining the joke. Then ask for forgiveness, the old woman said, staring into Arachne's eyes. That Arachne could even weave was a gift from the goddess. Seek fame among mortals, fine, but the old woman said that with age came knowledge. She knew that if Arachne cried out with a humble voice, the goddess would forgive her arrogance. Yeah, you know what? You're right, Arachne replied. She said that the woman was old. The years had been a lot for her, and now she was just sitting, rambling nonsense to strangers. She would call someone so the woman could resume rambling her nonsense to her family. As for Athena, if she was so mad, why didn't she come herself? If she's so great, why doesn't she have the same courage of an old woman and come challenge Arachne? Well, Arachne, I have something to tell you, the old woman managed. She appeared so weak that she struggled to talk at this point. Oh no, what could it be? That you're actually Athena in disguise? Arachne asked. <laughs> no, I'm actually Athena in Wait, you guessed it? The goddess Athena said after pulling off her disguise. Yeah, Athena, you show her. Arachne heard from the doorway. In the moments before the reveal, Athena's entourage of nymphs, lesser female water deities, had flooded in. Guys, it's just, she guessed it, okay? Read the room. Athena chastised. The mockery didn't quite land if Arachne guessed the big reveal. Athena turned to the mortal, the one that refused to thank her and give her her due praise. Her eyes flashed. It was time to humble this young woman. I accept your challenge, the goddess said. Good, Arachne replied, and pushed the frame aside. She brought out another one. Arachne looked forward to the goddess asking her forgiveness when all this was over. It was Olympian versus human, mortal versus immortal. When one of the villagers noticed a team of nymphs bringing the beautiful, fully armored stranger water and massaging her shoulders like a prize fighter, while she and Arachne worked feverishly on the loom, he called his friends. Soon, the workshop was packed as the surrounding village clamored in for a look at what the two women were weaving. Arachne was working in such a way that hid her designs. But Athena wasn't. Her works told the glories of the gods and their powers over humans, starting with her very own first victory. It was the founding and naming of Athens when the people of the city found Athena's gift of an olive tree, preferable to Poseidon's gift of a saltwater spring. Can't imagine why. Poseidon then graciously flooded the city with his spring to show how not mad he was. Athena showed her own greatness, but she also showed something else. As the waters flowed from Athens, they went somewhere else. 
into a pot that cooked dinner for a god, and into a deluge, and into a warning that Arachne and all the other humans were only there because the gods explicitly allowed them to be. Wait, why are we cutting away? One of Athena's nymph cheerleaders asked another. The other nymph sighed, just relax. This is like an anthology thing where they go into some different, lesser-known stories that are woven into the works. Oh, okay, that's surprising. Um, are we going to be back? Are we going to figure out what happens to Athena and Arachne, or are we done for the day? Nymph 2 looked up from her phone. No, just, it's a framing narrative. It provides some loose context to tell the stories, but we'll be back. They'll let us know when we're live again, just hang out for a while. Oh, okay. The other nymph replied and sat back to let us actually transition to the story. The year was the time before we had gears, and the place was Earth. Prometheus was a titan, basically a god of the generation before the Olympians, and a member of the losing side, because the titans and the Olympians had fought a war. Thankfully, Prometheus and his brother had either stayed out of it, or betrayed the titans, depending on who you asked, meaning that they weren't locked up in the fiery Tartarus, like the rest of their cohort. Zeus's good side is a hard one to stay on, though, and it was only a matter of time until Prometheus stepped out of line. That happened a few days ago, when Zeus was deciding what humans would have to sacrifice to him. Prometheus was looking out for the humans, and ensured that they got to keep the meat, and Zeus only got the fat and the bones. Zeus, who is not ridiculously petty, definitely not, stomped off pouting. He took his ball and went home. And by ball, I mean fire that kept the humans alive and cooked their food. They could have the meat from sacrifices, but they would have to eat it raw. Now, Prometheus, fennel stock in hand, was heading to Olympus to make things right. But before he left for what would surely just be a quick trip to Olympus to get some fire, and then Earth to give some fire, he wanted to tell his brother one quick thing. Hey, so remember how I tricked Zeus and got that little perk for the humans? And now we're all about humans in this house? Maybe don't open that package that Zeus just sent, Prometheus said to his brother, Epimetheus. Epimetheus nodded. He knew. He wasn't stupid. And then he just stood there. Look, I'm late for something I gotta do, and people are getting cold down on Earth, so I don't have time to take this box around to the dumpster, Prometheus added. Zeus is smart and cruel. Whatever this is, it isn't good. You promise you're gonna throw it out? Epimetheus said he was already on his way. Don't worry about it. Okay, cool. I'll be right back, Prometheus said. Spoiler, he was not. But that's a story we covered in episode 28, Adamantine. Epimetheus walked over to the box. Take it to the dumpster. Throw it out. Gonna do that. But there was already a pair of scissors in his hand, and... Oops. Just happened to cut it neatly along the seams there. Still gonna take it out to the trash. Might as well have a peek at what's inside. When Epimetheus looked into the box... He immediately noticed two eyes staring back at him. Two beautiful eyes. Huh. A few hours earlier, up on Olympus, Zeus had all the gods engaged in a little revenge plan against man. It was called Woman, and it was going to be devastating. 
Okay, stepping back, this was originally written by Hesiod in the 8th century BC. I've read that he's considered the first written poet in the Western tradition. He also happens to be a raging misogynist. Like, dour, bitter, and just unpleasant. Hesiod, the writer of the earliest Pandora stories, had issues. The Pandora portion reads like a sad and lonely diary of someone trapped in a bad marriage. He has some strong opinions on women and basically comes out and says in an ancient Greek poem how women were useless, evil things. Hesiod says in times of famine they're dead weight, and in the good time they are queen bees, sitting back at home and making the male worker bee do all the toiling. In Hesiod's mind, women were idle, foolish, and mischievous. Marriage was, according to Hesiod, a bad idea, because even in the best marriages, you're mixing good and evil. And in normal marriages, a man's heart is filled with unending pain, because reasons. When I was talking to Carissa about the ridiculousness of this, she said that he should just not get married. Well, he has a rebuttal for that too. If you don't get married, you grow to a miserable old age with no one to take care of you. And what family you do have just takes all your stuff and you die. Hesiod was just a ray of sunshine. So, that's what we're walking into when it comes to the Pandora story. Up to this point, Earth was just one big Top Gun volleyball game. All guys. So Zeus dropped off some blueprints to Hera's kid, Hephaestus, and he had him craft the ultimate weapon. He invited everyone to add features too, when she came out of the smithy. Athena taught her crafts and dressed her in silver robes. Aphrodite gave her the means to create burning desires. Hermes was annoyed at all these positive aspects and decided to crank up the misogyny. He gave her, quote, a dog's mind and a thievish character and set lies and guileful words in her breast. They rounded her out with a crown, jewelry, and garlands, and the woman awoke to consciousness on Mount Olympus. And her first experience was Zeus pressing a jar into her arms. He told her to never, under any circumstances, open that jar. And then they put her in a box, and voila, she showed up on Epimetheus's doorstep. As I said, her name was Pandora, which means gifts and all, and after taking one look at her, Epimetheus decided that she was staying and marrying him. Surprise, a story written by a guy who considers women to be the worst punishment imaginable and the root of all evil in the world doesn't say whether or not Pandora consented to the marriage. They had one child, a daughter. Her name was Pyrrha. And the fact that Pandora sat around with that jar for at least nine months is a credit to her. I wouldn't be able to take nine minutes without popping that lid open. I can imagine Zeus tapping his toe up on Olympus. But life is long and temptation is strong. And one morning when she thought no one was looking, Pandora cracked the lid of the jar. From that jar flew disease, war, strife, vice, and toil. The need to work for sustenance. All the evils of the world exploded out like a dark cloud of ravens before Pandora was able to find the lid and slam it back down. When she did she found that hope remained stuck in the lid of the jar. But this story actually isn't about Pandora. Remember the deluge in the tapestry that Athena was weaving? Well, after one too many terrible parties, Zeus decided to flood the entire earth. Hard reset. Just flush out all the gunk and start over. You might think that a bad dinner party isn't a great reason for ending the lives of millions of people. And I'm not going to say it was justified, but... I kind of get it. You see, 
You know how people have a scab that they can't stop picking at? They know it's bad, they know they shouldn't do it, but they just can't help it? It was kind of like that, but with the concept of omniscience and the power of the king of the gods. On more than a few occasions, Zeus would honor a royal family, a royal family of humans, by popping in for dinner. The royal family, having the most powerful being in the universe eating off their good china, decided that, you know what we should do? We should test out how much this guy really knows. So, invariably, they would kill a child and cook him into the food. Zeus isn't traditionally omniscient, or all-knowing in Greek mythology. But I imagine after dinner parties number three or four, you kind of start to recognize the smell and taste of people in your appetizers and get pretty fed up with it. When Zeus had dinner with Lycaon of Arcadia, who would become the very first werewolf and bit down on a child slider, he decided that he was done, just done. Humanity had been a horrible mistake and they were gross. And that was saying something because he was Zeus. Before kicking things off though, he turned Lycaon and his 50 sons into wolves. And yes, Lycaon not only had 50 sons, but they all agreed that this sounded like a great idea. And as much as I understand Zeus's frustration with constantly being fed people to test his knowledge, you also have to remember that he kind of brought this on himself. I mean, he gave humanity Pandora, and he gave her that box that led to all the evils escaping out into the world. So it seems a little contradictory to them be trying to end humanity for being evil, when you yourself made them evil. If Zeus is consistently anything, he's consistently terrible though. So maybe being frustrated at him for being a jerk says more about me than it does about him. At this point, Prometheus was bound up on the mountain, with Zeus's eagle enjoying a Prometheus buffet each morning when it gulped down the titan's liver. It did this because Prometheus gave fire to humans. Prometheus though, was wise, and he saw Zeus's all-consuming rage coming. Prometheus had a son, Deucalion, and he left word with his son, a warning. And when Deucalion got the warning, he and his wife, Pyrrha, remember the daughter of Prometheus's Titan brother and Pandora herself, started building a boat. And it was a boat, not an ark. They didn't really concern themselves with trying to save two of every animal. They barely finished in time, and when they watched their home being crushed and consumed by the waters of the flood, Deucalion held Pyrrha they were going to be all right. Zeus, when he found out that some of the humans had made it, was not thrilled. But his hands were kind of tied. The rest of Olympus kind of liked the humans, what with the worship and the sacrifices, and they weren't thrilled about Zeus wiping out almost all of them unilaterally. So they were happy when they discovered that two of the most righteous human-ish beings had survived. And I say human-ish because between them, there's only like half a human. Deucalion himself is half-Titan, half-water goddess. Pyrrhus half-Titan, but still, half-human was good enough. And after the world grew silent, with no land, trees, or mountains, only the stark, flat, still horizon, the waters receded. When Deucalion and Pyrrha touched solid ground again, on top of Mount Parnassus by Delphi, they looked on the world that they hardly recognized. They saw the devastation, the dead, that still remained inside the buildings that had stayed standing. Deucalion and Pyrrha were overcome. Everyone except basically their immediate families were dead. They were saved, but they were alone. They tried to honor the gods that had allowed them to live, first making an altar to Zeus, and then honoring Themis. And Zeus heard them. 
sending Hermes down to say that anything they wanted, they would be granted. Immediately undoing the entire point of the flood, the pair asked for the humans back. All of them. Zeus groaned, come on, he just finished killing them. All right, whatever. A promise was a promise. He sent Hermes down with a riddle. Shroud your heads and throw the bones of your mother behind you. We don't know how long it took them to figure out this riddle. When the surface of the earth is basically a dead planet, you have a lot of time to figure out riddles. Deucalion and Pyrrha picked up the bones of their mother, the rocks of Mother Earth, the Titaness and godly grandma, Gaia, and began tossing them over their shoulders. The rocks that Deucalion tossed became men, and the rocks that Pyrrha tossed became women. And, for years, they traveled the earth, tossing rocks, repopulating what Zeus had ravaged. We'll get back to our framing narrative and see what Arachne's been working on, but that will be right after this. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Nice one, Athena. Put that human in her place. Show her that the gods are in control and that she only exists at our pleasure. One of the nymphs yelled when she realized that they were rolling again. Athena smiled and nodded. Thanks for spelling out the subtext of her work. Art, like jokes, works best when it's exhaustively explained. But Arachne wasn't paying attention to Athena's weaving. She was working hard on her own. And, like the goddess of wisdom... Arachne's work had a theme as well. A theme that was just starting to come into focus. After handing out novelty foam fingers and giant owl glasses, the nymphs looked at Athena's work. And their smiles vanished. They stood in awe. And, even as Athena gritted her teeth and clenched her fists, all but forbidding any of her entourage to look at Arachne's work, no one could look away. It was beautiful, and it was horrible. In it were the sins. They were the sins of every god on Olympus. Zeus trained into a swan to assault Leda, a bull to abduct Europa, an eagle to take Ganymede, a shower of gold to get Danae. There was him swallowing and killing Athena's own mother, Metis. And it wasn't just Zeus. There were the dozens of women that Hera had hunted down. There was her throwing her own child off Olympus and what she had done to Hercules when she struck him with madness and he killed his own family. There was Hades abducting Persephone, Apollo striking people with his arrows, and flaying beings alive for being better at him at the lyre, and Poseidon. His sins implicated Athena herself. In Arachne's work, he was assaulting a woman at Athena's temple, a poor girl by the name of Medusa. Athena, the wise, didn't take the side of the victim, but in response to what had been done to her, Athena turned the woman into a monster. It was a scene of devastation, cruelty, and tyranny. In short, it was humanity's relationship with the gods. Athena seethed, but Arachne kept working. 
with her powerful, devastating work, she had not only silenced Athena's fans, but they started taking a greater interest in the story that she was telling. They, too, started to recognize that maybe the gods on Olympus were capricious and cruel. Maybe they weren't deserving of reverence or worship. But Arachne's tapestry wasn't just detailing the sins of Olympus, but of the times when humans fought back. It included the story of Idas. Idas looked at the heads of those who had gone before him. The heads nailed to King Evanus's wall. So this was a trap. King Evanus was not a creative man, but what is creative and what's effective is not always mutually exclusive. King Evanus had a daughter named Marpessa. For reasons we won't delve into, he wanted that daughter to stay a virgin. But a lot of guys also wanted to marry Marpessa. So he wanted to give the guys a chance while also not really giving them a chance. So he said that anyone who wanted to marry his daughter had to compete with him in a chariot race. Whether it was rigged or Evanus was that good, I just didn't know. What he did know was that whoever raced Evanus ended up with his head nailed to the king's wall. So, Idas was here to ask for Marpessa's hand in marriage. You have a chariot? Evanus asked. Idas shook his head. Not yet, but his dad was going to get him one. Evanus shrugged. Head on back here, and if he really nails it, Idas might find himself hanging around. Idas pursed his lips. Hmm. Nailing people's heads to the wall was bad, but the puns were the real crime. After Idas left Evanus, he went to go ask his dad for a favor, meaning he went to the beach, knelt down, and begged his dad for a new car. Poseidon, just happy to be included in these stories and for people to recognize that he had extramarital children as well, came through. And then some. When Idas saw the chariot, he knew that he was not going to race Evanus. Marpessa, the daughter of Evanus and the princess of Pleuron, was out having a good time with some friends. They were in a dancing circle in the wilderness. It was kind of like a girl's night, and it was a nice break from all the guys that wanted to marry her, and them subsequently getting their heads nailed to the palace walls. And then she heard the flapping. The woman parted to allow the chariot a place to land. Piloted by a handsome young man, the chariot had to be a gift from Poseidon himself. The guards that had been watching over the women from a distance took one look at the chariot and bolted for the palace. And Idas stepped down, bowing low and introducing himself. He was a prince, a former Argonaut, someone who had been on the hunt for the Caledonian boar in episode 76, and maybe his most important title, her future husband. Marpessa smirked. That was presumptuous, but continue. Idas did. He said that it was obvious that Marpessa's dad didn't want her to marry. Everyone kept dying. She could stay here with her dad, who was oddly super obsessed with her virginity and keep watching that wall fill up with heads, or she could come with him. They could run away together in his flying car and be married. Marpessa didn't even wait. She got into the chariot. Drive. With a smile, Ida spurred the horses upward, and they were airborne just as Evanus rushed out into the field. 
Marpessa waved goodbye to her father, and he watched the pair disappear into the southern sky. As Itis and Marpessa rode through the night, south to the Peloponnese, they didn't know it, but someone was following them through the air, someone who also had his eye on Marpessa. Itis figured it out the following morning, when they landed in his homeland, maybe for like a bathroom break or something, I don't know. Holding Marpessa's hand, he let it go for a second, but a second was all it took. He heard a gasp, and then turned back. She was gone. He looked up, and saw the chariot of Apollo speeding off into the sky, with the god himself smirking back at Itis. Marpessa's eyes were wide with panic as she looked down, Apollo's grip of vice. Itis might have thought about what it actually meant to challenge an Olympian, how they're immortal, how the giants and titans had faced them and fallen, but he wasn't a titan or a giant. He was a human, and he would fight to the end for what he loved. Apollo was so certain that he could take whoever he wanted with impunity that he didn't notice Itis' chariot until Itis kicked the god himself in the face. The Olympian and the man fought, while Marpessa tried and mostly succeeded to crash land the chariot. When they hit the ground, both man and god sprang to their feet and drew their swords. Zeus rubbed the sleep from his eyes. It was three in the morning, guys. The sound of clashing swords had been ringing throughout the earth and sky for hours. What was Apollo doing? Apollo, a son of Zeus, was sweating. I'm in the middle of something, Dad, he managed. Once Zeus's eyes adjusted to the light of Marpessa's torch, Zeus could see what was going on. Apollo was fighting a mortal? Son, just kill the guy. I'm tired and you're making a lot of noise. Still barely managing to talk, Apollo said that he was trying for 16 hours. This guy, this guy was good. Ida said that Apollo could always run away, admit defeat, or die. Ida said that it didn't matter much to him, but that's how this was going to end. Can't say I disagree with him, Dad, Apollo said through panting to Zeus. Mind, uh, you know, helping me out by blowing him up? Dad? Far from blowing Itis to pieces with his mind, Zeus was passing the popcorn to Athena, Hera, Artemis, Ares, and the others, who just popped down from Olympus to see the human that was managing to stand up to a god. They weren't rooting for Itis, but they weren't not rooting for Itis. Really, it was a lot of fun to watch Apollo sweat and barely hold his own against a human. It was fun, for like the first five hours. But as the sun started to rise, the Olympians were checking their anachronistic watches. All right, when was this thing ending? Around hour 24 of the fight, with Itis still holding his own, but Apollo looking very rough, Zeus called it. He obviously did not want his son to die, even though he was kind of curious if that was even possible. Still though, they all had places to be and people to turn into cows. So here's what Zeus was going to do. Marpessa got to choose. God or man. The ageless and eternally beautiful Apollo. Or the stinky little meat sack that was destined for Hades. For Marpessa, there was no choice. Apollo would have to deal with losing. She chose Itis. 
Hermes buzzed down with the mic for the post-game show and asked Marpessa to explain her choice. Did she have anything she wanted to say to Apollo? Preferably in verse and penned by English poet Stephen Phillips, Marpessa nodded. And thou, beautiful God, in that fair time, when in thy setting sweet thou gazest down on this gray head, wilt thou remember then that I once pleased thee, that I once was young? The Olympians looked from side to side. Uh, what? Marpessa pinched the bridge of her nose. It meant that when she was super old, and he still looked the same, would he remember the time when he was actually attracted to her? Would he remember the time when she was young? She said she'd rather be with a human. She'd rather grow old with a good person, mean something to someone, than be with a god that would toss her aside when he lost interest. The Olympians, who were already taking flight and heading back to Olympus, said that they didn't get that, but whatever. Enjoy growing old and dying together, I guess? Fun. Bye. Even with their exhaustion and standing together facing an uncertain future that would likely end in tragedy, the couple... Marpessa and Itis were smiling. Together, they had faced the might of the gods. And they had won. Rachne's tapestry stood finished, its perfection marred only slightly by the specks of blood. The two works sat side by side, Athena's depicted a world of order, ruled by the Olympians. Arachne's told the other side of that coin. It told a story of unrestrained lust and cruelty. The gods taking what they wanted and who they wanted and leaving humans to deal with the consequences. When the works were finished, it was clear who the winner was, but no one wanted to say it. The golden-haired warrior goddess broke the silence when she broke a rod over Arachne's face. The woman fell to the floor, and Athena continued beating her. She was a warrior, so the weaver was no match. Slowly, amidst the cries of Arachne, people and nymphs alike looked to the ground and left the room. A human had stood up to a god, and now she was paying the consequences. Soon, only Athena and Arachne remained, spitting out blood and smiling, Arachne might have said that no matter what Athena did, she knew what happened here today. The people out there knew. The gods knew. What she did would follow her. Always. We don't know what Arachne said. But we know what she did. She refused to submit. They didn't deserve it, so she wouldn't give it to them. They were violent, cruel monsters. Since she would never submit, there was only one way to be forever beyond their reach. Athena watched Arachne weave her last work. A noose. Glaring at Athena, she found a hook on the wall and tossed the rope over a rafter. She would rather die than submit to them. As Arachne stepped off the table, the noose tightened. Athena walked up to her and the goddess of wisdom sighed. No, no, she didn't want this. She raised her hand. Arachne began to float. The rope went slack. Live on, Arachne, Athena said. The bewildered human coughed, a look of surprise just behind her tears. And then a look flashed in Athena's eyes. 
the look that Arachne had woven into her work countless times. A look of cruelty. Live on, Arachne, Athena said. Yet hang. Arachne dropped again. She stopped coughing. With Athena's other hand, the goddess sprinkled the juice of one of Hecate's herbs. If Arachne could have breathed, she would have screamed. In an instant, her hair fell out. With it went her nose and ears, and her eyes, defiant to the last, split and multiplied. Her head shrunk first, and then her body, her arms and legs, everything but her long, slender fingers. They shrunk and stuck to her side, the fingers that she had used to weave so beautifully that she challenged the gods. Now she and her children all of her descendants, to the last generation, would continue to weave. Forever. Athena saw the noose hanging there empty and smiled. With a flash, the shop was empty, save for one solitary spider weaving her first web up in the rafters. Before I wrap up, in the interest of full disclosure, I used Arachne and Athena as a framing narrative. And while Athena's work generally focuses on the power of the gods over humans, and Arachne focuses on the cruelty of the gods toward humans, and both include a lot of stories, I'm pretty sure that not all the stories included today were explicitly mentioned. I definitely think that they fit with the themes, though, and the story as a whole seemed like a good way to share them. The main story today, that of Arachne and Athena, or Minerva for the Romans, was brought to us by Ovid a Roman poet who lived through the fall of the Roman Republic and the rise of the Roman Empire under the first emperor, Augustus. It's thought that this story is an allegory of art in the time of authoritarianism because, I guess at the time, weaving was a metaphor for poetry. Ovid was exiled by Augustus at the age of 48 and died in exile about 10 years later. Humorously enough, his exile was revoked 2,000 years after the fact by Rome's city council was actually two years ago, in 2017. The creature this week is the Rolling Calf, from Jamaica. The Rolling Calf is a duppy, which is like a ghost or a creature that comes specifically from Jamaican folklore. They're your average scary nighttime creature, and their pastimes generally include beating people up, burning things down, poisoning things, or throwing rocks. Despite its name, and look, and kind of everything about it, the rolling calf is the most fearsome of the duppies. It looks like a hornless goat with fire eyes and rattling chains, which gives it some points on the scary side of the ledger, but on the other hand, in place of a front hoof, it has a human foot, and it's scared of the moon, which seems like a massive liability for a nighttime monster. If you're caught by the rolling calf, and aren't beaten up, burned, poisoned, or have rocks thrown at you, watch out. Because it's also kind of like a goat zombie. Because if it bites you, you turn into a rolling calf as well. I found conflicting reports on what else it takes to become a rolling calf. With one place saying that it can happen to people who are too bad for heaven, but too good for hell. And the other saying that it's only reserved for the worst of the worst. 
The rolling calf will go after molasses because it likes sweets. Who doesn't? And it dislikes being flogged with a tarred whip by someone's left hand. Also, who doesn't? They don't like running or walking uphill, so they'll refuse to follow people. I kind of agree with them on that one. But back to their worst and most glaring weakness, the moon. They're afraid of it. So just bring a mirror with you and reflect the moon back at the rolling calf. Its fire eyes will widen and it will take off. But watch out, because the rolling calf always comes back with a vengeance. You might have to only come out on nights when there's a moon. Or walk slowly up a hill to get away. Yeah, you're probably going to be okay. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes, and I want to say thanks again to Simply Safe for sponsoring us this week. Simply Safe is my choice for home security. It's comprehensive, professional home security at a fair price, and right now is the best time of year to get a Simply Safe security system. My listeners get a free security camera, plus a huge discount on your security system. Visit simplysafe.com slash legends to get a free camera, plus Simply Safe's holiday savings. The offer is for a limited time only, and it's ending soon. Visit simplysafe.com slash legends today. That's simplysafe.com slash legends. All right, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.